Onic misfortune of our opening theme? No matter, it occasionally happens, such as life. My name is Jake Clark, which you probably may have already surmised, and this is the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the unceded Musqueam territory of UBC's Point Grey campus. And we've got quite a fun little show for you here today. We actually have some very interesting reviews of very different media. First, we have... Our, our, uh, ah, sorry, I, I almost sneezed for a second. I don't know why. Right, we have our stalwart correspondent, Lua, talking about the newest show at the Belkin Gallery, which I am going to have trouble <laughs> pronouncing. Yeah, so actually the first thing when I got to the gallery, I was like, hey, how, how do I say the exhibition's name? And I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing this wrong. I'm trying my best. Um, that's also what the girl at the reception told me um, and it's called Hexum to be here always so it started last Friday and it's going to go on until April 7th 2019 and at the Morris and Helen Belkin Art Gallery here at UBC um, so if you guys aren't familiar with the gallery it's open from Tuesday to Sunday I'm pretty sure until 5 uh, from 10 to 5. I know all those things because I've been there. <laughs> I go there a lot <laughs> for classes um, and for my personal reasons. And it's a, it's a really cool space. And they have done many different exhibitions. And this is part of the Beginning with the 70s um, series that they have been working with, which has included uh, the first exhibition, uh, I can't remember the name right now, but it was Feminist Art of the 70s. That's right. That one was, was that the bookstore one? Uh, the books. Yes, yes. The one that had the bookstore. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that one. I can't remember what it was specifically I think it's titled. called Gek or it was something with a G, but I can't remember what it was. I. They had some interesting stuff at that one. They had like a cat of nine tales made of passages of Nietzsche. Really? Yeah. I, I, the one that stuck to me was... Uh, a graphic, like initial graphic design kind of, you know, like 70s graphic design is a little bit different from what we know as graphic design today. And it was like back black, black background and bright pink letters. And it was this quote from this movie and something about like uh, she, the way she looked and she did these things. And you could interpret it so many ways. And once you knew it was a quote from a movie where the narrator was describing a woman, it kind of was like, you know, like as a woman, it kind of felt like "Mm, it's weird. But if you thought about it as a woman talking about another woman, it would have been like, oh, okay, I can see that. Or a woman talking about herself would be like, oh, yeah, that's totally fine. But because it was a man describing a woman, it kind of felt like, oh, that's that's kind of like not cool. And so, like, to see all these different perspectives, because it's not obvious once you see the piece, the where it comes from. But, yeah, that was back then. That exhibition is not going on anymore. Uh, after that, there was another one all with all indigenous women as well, female artists as well, celebrating um, a um, one of a march that happened in the 70s. And now they have this exhibition called Hexum to be here always. And it is, it it is smaller. At least I felt that it is a small, a lot smaller than the other pieces. Um, just regarding the number of pieces in the gallery, it felt very empty at times. Um, and so I'm actually going to read a little bit of the description 
that they provide for the exhibition. So in 1914, delegates of Mekina McBride Royal Commission met with all. I'm I, I'm. There might be a couple roadblocks in this one. Yeah, because we need the girl from 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 the front desk. Yeah, I'm so sorry, guys. But basically, it's about a cent. And then I'm going to skip this phrase. <laughs> I'm going to go a century later in May 2018. The First Nations does. Yeah, I don't want to butcher this name, so I'm really not gonna. I don't. It's a, It's another. Fair yes. enough. Because <laughs> I have trouble with indigenous names just because I don't know what to do with the number of consonants that are in the words because my first language doesn't have that many consonants May I in see general. It? It's the. Let me see here. The. Uh, yeah, that's beyond me. Um, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. But uh, let's say a. Uh, it, so it's it's a specific nation here on the yeah okay it's one of the coastal nations in the Bowton Archipelago yeah and basically it's talking about um, indigenous sovereignty of certain land in BC and how it was divided and not only divided but how it was redivided by this commission that basically took away forty five thousand acres that were worth. $1.5 billion and gave them 885,000 acres that was worth $45,000. So they were like, oh, we're going to give you more land, but it's so much, it's the land that's so devalued that it's, it's worthless. It's worthless. It's, it's not a fair trade, you know? And some of the um, pieces in this exhibition are actually the documents or like inter- the actual documents being put really big which I find really interesting but my favorite piece of the exhibition is a three-piece video installation that I think it's was it, it was so immersive uh, and I feel that this is something that the Belkin Gallery does really well uh, because they have the projection space to make these really really big screens that you can actually kind of feel dwarfed by and with this three screen uh, piece uh, they each screen shows a different uh one of them shows uh, an indigenous man playing uh playing an instrument another one is just these beautiful absolutely gorgeous images of bc and another one is an animation of an indigenous folktale and so all of them have sound and so you listen to the sound and see the images all at the same time. And I felt personally that it was kind of just transporting me into this other state where I'm more like I, I literally just felt that I was in nature somehow and listening to this beautiful story about uh, the creation of a village, creation of a, of a, a First Nation uh, so that one is something. Yeah, it's small, but I think it's really worth to go there, even if you don't have much time. It's like it's good that's small. It's free entry, so you can just be there. Oh, I have like fifteen minutes between classes. Stop by and take a look at it. It looks to be a very comprehensive mixed media project. There's yeah. a lot of stuff in play here. It's very mixed media. They have prints. They have video installations. They have photography. Uh, they even have some weaving. Nice. Yeah, that's that's interesting with this beginning in the '70s series because that's also 
with the uh, I remember with the bookstore one because it was attempting to convey the different permutations you have with print and with the arrangement of that. So I, I think these are interesting. All right, Belkin yeah. Gallery. Sounds cool. And uh, before we take our PSA break here, I do want to say we have actually an inaugural review uh, for the art support, and that will be of Alison Chisholm's book, uh, On the Count of None, uh, by a new correspondent. Introduce yourself, right on. <laughs> Hi, guys. Um, my name is Silvana. Silvana? Nice Silvana. to meet you. <laughs> That's like no, I'm sorry, Jake. Would you you don't you didn't get it, <laughs> Jake? Carry on. <laughs> okay, um, yeah, um, I guess this is my first like, rep- like uh, gig with the arts report, and it was a very good book. I honestly really enjoyed reading all her poems. Um, on the count of none is a. It's such a like nice compilation of, it's mostly short poems, um, and they have all this big mix of uh, topics uh, of different um, characters, and in her media release it says that um, I, I'm gonna quote it actually uh, the surprising poems in this audacious debut explore the relationship between the serious and the absurd the formal and the illogical, whimsy and threat and meaning and tone. And you can definitely see how she incorporates all these different elements in the different poems in a, in the in the different pages of the book in general. Did you have a favorite poem? Mm, I don't know if I can pinpoint a favorite, but I definitely highlighted some that I that I, like I pretty like enjoyed. Would you like to read one? Yeah, of course. Um there was this really, this is like a really, really short one, but I don't know. I guess it kind of like spoke to me because I guess I I tend to do this sometimes. It's called uh, Full Disclosure. Mm. On the subject of her own gifts, she will often look you dead in the eye and tell you she's blown her own mind. <laughs> it's super short. I like it. <laughs> I like it too. It's kind of, I don't know. I just thought of, like, when you sit down and you think about, like, I don't know, just different stuff in your life. You may be thinking about class. You may, th- may be thinking, like, I don't know, just, like, not per- not thinking in particular, just daydreaming, maybe in, like, the commute to campus. And then something clicks and you're like, wow, I have this sudden realization and now life makes sense, right? Exactly. <laughs> you're just like, I astound myself. <laughs> <laughs> That is fabulous. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But and it's not necessarily on, like, your own things, but just something that randomly clicks and nothing becomes the same anymore. I don't know. Those key things that, like, people in literature do all the time. That's the power of observation. It really is. It's just a slightly canted view of the world. Yeah. And... I, I kind of think about, I, I'm given to think about poetry ver- as a very similar thing to music and to comedy, mm-hmm. partially because you can break them down into bits. Like in poetry, there's the poems, there's the collection, and then there's the anthology. In comedy, there's the bit, the joke, the set. In music, there's the song, the album. And you could, I guess, say albums aren't usually c- connected, but like there's bigger things. There's like symphonies, there's operas. So it's all mm-hmm. those tiers of organization. And you can experience them 
in all of these things. You can hear a single joke, you can read a single poem, or you can listen to a single song. You could listen to an opera. You could I repeat myself, obviously, but yeah, I don't have to do that. I don't repeat myself. Um, but you can do that multiple times, you know, and get different things out of them. And I'm wondering with that, does this poem have a lot of readability and rereadability, do you think? Do you think you can revisit some of these things and blow your own mind again? <laughs> I think so, definitely. I feel that whenever you feel, you read a poem, like the context in which like you're in your headspace, like just your point in your life, rereading a poem like can totally change or it can to or or can feel like the same thing like depending on where you are. So maybe some when something is like very essential to you, maybe it won't change that much. So, I don't know, just that like that feeling of like blowing your own mind is something that like you can revisit but on different topics and just in general I feel like that's very interesting she really captured like that feeling I had never like read a poem that like captured that and it was really and it's really short but she has like a bunch of others a of other poems on different topics she even has like a poem for every single like sign of the the zodiac signs. Oh, can you can you read Aries? Because now I'm curious. Yeah, are you? Are you? <laughs> <laughs> I request as well. Actually, I think that's her first poem. Like, in yeah, the usually it is because it's the first sign of the zodiac. Of mm. the yeah, I was gonna say of the alphabet for some reason. In my I head, I was like, yeah, the first sign of the alphabet. I thought it was Capricorn for a second, but that's the last one, isn't yeah. it? Because it's yeah. the goes by. The Capricorn is um. January, but it actually starts in April when Aries is. I actually didn't know that. Yeah, well, that's always the order that they post any, like, they do any, the, the Aries is, like, the first. Mm, interesting. Mm. Okay, <laughs> so the Aries poem is, If you're not yet moving at top speed, you very soon will be. Reach out to a close alley. Consult an expert at low volume. The results will be pleasing. An abundance of greenery in the shadows of Venus. Be prepared for a strong reaction. Huh. How do you feel about that? I don't. <laughs> I don't know. Be prepared for a strong reaction. I feel that the strongest reaction anyone can have is always me. Like, I'm the one that has a strong reaction. So I also feel that that's kind of like an Aries thing. I was going to say, is that an Aries thing to say? <laughs> is there a Gemini poem? Yes, <laughs> now I am actually that same um, sign. Not that I, like, look at it, like, often, but I was just, like, well, may as well check my own birthday, you know. <laughs> so, is is it also, is your birthday also, like, within May 21st and June 20? Yeah, I'm a Gemini. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> um, okay, so it says, this month you will rely on a sturdy internal frame. Use your fortitude to protect your internal organs from the pull of gravity. As much as possible, be on the lookout for... Sheep herders or free radicals. All signs suggest a resurgence in uncertainty. There you go. Careful so with your internal organs. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Careful with your internal organs. Uh, I assume that the internal framework, you know, skeleton, so makes sense. And avoid whales. Okay. The country of whales, not the, the animal. Uh, oh, I was thinking the animal. Did you know that? Okay, I was going to It's generally a good idea to avoid the, you know, the, the murder dolphins, yeah? You know that there's a, uh, so my cousin studied law in Texas, 
Well, Good like... start to any sentence. <laughs> well, she's not studying law, but wow. she was studying to be a diplomat. And so she studied some laws. But basically, there's this town in Texas that has a law that says, um, basically, the only thing this guy did as the mayor was create a law that said that prohibited whale fishing. Um, which is pretty cool, right? Because, like, you don't want to kill whales just for their oil. But the thing is, that city or that state or co- county or whatever it's called doesn't have... It's completely landlocked. Yeah, it's completely <laughs> landlocked. <laughs> so, yeah, wow. that's a great law, you know? That's good civics <laughs> right there. I'll tell you this right now. I'm running my campaign platform on one issue, one issue only. That is whale hunting. <laughs> Uh, Jed, we're in a landlocked county in West Texas. We have problems getting the river to run. At what point do you suppose we will encounter a gargantuan mammal possessing a blowhole? A blowhole. You know something, Larry? That's exact, that is exactly, exactly what an illegal communist would say. You know who doesn't care about whales? Communist. They don't. Don't. That's why there's all those whales up in Russia. Jed wins by a landslide. Wow. Well, at least in the poem, it says as much as possible to be on the lookout for free radicals. Where do you think you can find a free radical? I don't even know what that means fully. I feel that terms like the, these are so just broad and so thrown <laughs> around like, oh, you're a liberal. And I'm like... Uh, free radical is a chemistry term. It's an uncharged <laughs> molecule, typically highly reactive and short-lived, having an unpaired valence electron. So I'm going to avoid hadron colliders. I think that's a good idea. Um, I usually do that because I don't live in Switzerland. So Switzerland and Wales, okay, avoid those areas. We're learning from this. I think this is a good thing. You know? Avoid the chemistry building. That's the thing. You can get a lot of wisdom from a poem like you can from a song or a joke. I don't repeat myself. And <laughs> you really can. So you would recommend this book in short? I really would. I would. Um... There was also, like, something else that I thought was, like, really interesting. Um, Okay, she dedicates some of her poems. Uh, So, I don't know, this one is called Money in the Meter, and it says, For Michael. And then, further ahead in the book, she references... She references... um, that she wrote a love poem for Michael. So I revisited the poem. And then you're like, huh, like maybe this is like kind of like some sort of like love communication for Michael, whoever Michael is in her life. And I don't know, she she has this little like connections as well. There's this, a, a, the first poem, it's called like, well, the prologue and the epilogue. A, and also like these other poems, there are three called The Dollhouse. So I feel like those, they may be like three acts of like the same scene, but at the same time, they're not, they don't, they don't exactly feel like one whole like story. It's just like, I don't, I don't know if they're like, um, how do you say this? Like chronologic? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Continuous. But it's definitely like, it talks about this character named Ellen and also in the prologue and the epilogue, and in another one called Heart Sound, Ellen's also mentioned. So I was like, mm, who's this Ellen? Okay. So it's interesting. Yeah. It's full of like little quirks, the little book. Do you want to repeat the name and the author so people can find it? Of course. It's On the Count of None by Alison Chisholm. 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 Yeah. Alison yes. Chisholm with, uh, yes. On the Count of None. Arsenal Pulp Press, our friends over there, they make great stuff. And check out Hexam. 
Hexum? To be there, to be here always. Hexum, to be here always at the Belkin Gallery. That'll be running, I think, until April. April. Okay, cool. So that has been awesome. It's a great start here. Uh, when we return, we're going to have uh, some talk about uh, Push and a couple interesting takes on religion and theater, including the improvised religion show Unscriptured and an interview with Ian Farthing, uh, who you may have known as C.S. Lewis from Pacific Theater's Tolkien, currently directing uh, A Prayer for Owen Meany, which opens this weekend. Uh, I'm Jake Clark. This is The Arts Report, and we'll be right back. This Quarter Magazine has been supporting local music for over 30 years. Thanks to the long-term support of the Rickshaw Theatre, This Quarter lives. Your favorite bands are playing at the Rickshaw Theatre. Check out their calendar just behind the cover of This Quarter Magazine or at rickshawtheatre.com. I take my life. I want you all to take your life. I want you all to have your life. UBC Theatre and Film presents Lion in the Streets, directed by MFA candidate Michelle Thorne, telling the story of Isabel, the ghost of a murdered nine-year-old Filipina. Returning to the neighborhood 17 years after her death, young Isabel drops into the lives of her neighbors and reveals the hauntingly raw underbelly of human nature. Ultimately hopeful, Judith Thompson's seminal play, Lion in the Streets, devours with devastating beauty. Running January 17 to February 2nd at the TELUS Studio Theatre in the Chan Center for the Performing Arts. Student tickets only $11.50 at theaterfilm.ubc.ca. And we're back. Did you miss us? Yep, I'm still Jake Clark. This is still the Arts Report. And we've got a panoply of different ones here. We're really cycling through mediums this show. Uh, firstly, we have uh, our... Uh, oh, for love of God. I, I keep running out of adjectives to describe our correspondence because, like, there's only so many twists on good. Um, <laughs> we have Margarita returning to us this year. How's yeah. 2019 treating you so far? So good. I'm inspired. Now, I understand you saw a VR installation. Yes, Since we, did. we last met. Was that the one that was on our show by any chance? Yeah, exactly. I was I was really intrigued, and I said, I have to check it out, and I did. It was at the Western Front. Um, it was kind of like um, an experimental, new, mixed-media uh, experience. If you remember, she was talking about how uh, there was the saxophone, jazz, saxophone player, jazz musician. Telepresence, was, yeah. Telepresence, that was the name, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so, okay, so the experience goes like this. You enter a room, a large room, with uh, spinning chairs. Each person gets a VR set. And then uh, when the experience starts, the, um, the world that you're in, the VR virtual reality world that you're in, starts uh, emerging out of nowhere with kind of like clouds and amorphous shapes and the music sets in and if you remember the music is partially pre-constructed and then partially improvised and the cool thing that I really enjoyed 
about the virtual world is that they created kind of a rectangular box that we were inside of and it was much larger than the space that you're in so imagine when the VR starts you kind of get like these amorphous clouds of, of haze and stuff like that you kind of like you don't have a sense of space and you still remember the size of the room that you're in but then when they were building this kind of like rectangular box that, that we were in the floor was much lower than the floor of the room the ceiling was much higher than the than the ceiling of the room etc etc and what i really enjoyed about that was it kind of transported me to another state of mind kind of like it kind of felt trippy i gotta say kind of like psychedelic experience uh in a way that i was not present in the room anymore and the really cool thing I enjoyed is that when I was looking down, I couldn't see myself. I could only see the space that I was in. And that incorporated with the music that was kind of like, you can imagine, kind of like trippy, deconstructed, um, ambient music. It was a really special experience. Um, I would recommend everybody to check it out. It isn't very expensive, too, but it isn't showing anymore. It was just like those three days. Um, so we're just taunting you. We're just taunting you. But the the takeaway that I can offer our, our uh, listeners is that um, check out experimental VR stuff because it's it's a new emerging field. The experience itself was very short. It was like 15 minutes. When it was over, it was like, oh, that's it. Um, and I feel like this is something that people are, are just starting to explore whether it be uh, in an artistic sense, whether it be in a technical sense, you know, they're still constructing those worlds. And it's cool. I can't wait to see what will happen, like, you know, in a, in a couple of years, in five years, movies-wise, art-wise, how they're going to incorporate that. Because VR doesn't have to be just uh, to play a game or to get to, to a certain end. It could be an experience on its own, just like, a medium of exploration of uh, experiences and sensations. And I really enjoyed the, the point, the, the fact that it, um, like I said, kind of like altered my state of mind, altered my uh, consciousness. I mean, I think that the natural progression of VR is to do a hardcore Henry-style uh, insane first-person film and seeing who can stand through it. Are you guys heard? so hardcore what Henry? Henry's hardcore Henry so Hard, hardcore Henry was like this uh, action movie that's all shot in the first person. Mm. Uh, I want to say it's it's like uh, it, it's a Russian movie, I think, because of course it is, and it's just an insane and violent action movie all in the first. So it's, it just, but I imagine that's where that's going. If you have VR, if you can put someone in those shoes, things are going to get real weird, real interesting. Quick. Makes me think about the new Black Mirror uh, thing. If you watched it, the interactive, I no. it's interactive, and you choose what the person does, but then he becomes aware of that you're controlling him. Oh, cool! So that could be interesting too. <laughs> that's that's a Black Mirror way to go about it. Okay, mm-hmm. fun stuff. <laughs> now. That's VR is really the medium, as you'd say, of the future to a degree. I'm, we're not sure how it's going to pan out, but it's definitely very futuristic. Correspondingly, theater, in a way, seems kind of outdated. Actually, kind of interesting considering that telepresence is taking you to a direct performance. 
However, theater is the meat of this show, and there's some fantastic productions going on right now, for which we have yet another new correspondent to inform you more thoroughly. Hi. Introduce yourself right on. My name is Leah. Nice to meet you. Hi, Leah. Nice to meet you, too. Um, I don't repeat myself. And I am um, a grad student over at the School of Journalism. But, um, yeah, now I, I also do some writing for Beetroot on, on theater happening in Vancouver. Now, just to be clear, Beetroot is a magazine? Uh, yeah, it's, um, well, it's a monthly publication, um, but I, I'd say it's more of a newspaper. I don't know. I don't know. What it a newsletter, a uh, quarterly uh, tabloid broadsheet. It's kind of like a, the Georgia Strait. You know, I guess, but just not as, you know, you don't see the little distribution things on every block. People get it for the back page, huh? <laughs> Interesting. And uh, what are some shows you've you've seen recently or that you've heard a lot of great buzz about? Um, I'm actually seeing one tomorrow uh, that is called, um, it's at the Colch. Um, it's called Mrs. Krishnan's Party. And um, it's a little piece of uh, participatory theater um, I, uh, which I'm, I'm actually a fan of, um, for those who don't know, participatory theater is, um, where you get the audience involved. Um, and I, I actually saw some a couple years ago, um, in London. It was so cool. What they did is they took like these abandoned, um, tube stations and transformed it into like this wonderland from Alice in Wonderland and then you're traveling around Whoa. and experiencing it yeah um it's a really I think it, it, it can be used really creatively um so uh the premise for Mrs. Krishna's, Krishnan's party is um there's uh this um uh older uh Indian woman uh, Mrs. Krishnan um who uh her son's away but he's coming back she has um this uh guy who boards at her um house um and uh he decides to throw this party for her son when he's coming back um and uh a bunch of uh guests show up which is the audience (laughs) which catches them off guard but there's um you know there's music there's food there's dancing um it i think it should be really fun um the the Kolsch does some really cool stuff. Nice. Yeah. I I haven't seen a lot of shows at the Kolsch recently. I will say, mm-hmm. I think they they've done they've sent us a lot of shows and we've had interviews. I think with a lot of um, performers at the Kolsch, which is interesting because the Kolsch has like I think the last show that they did that we had on this show was uh, it was poetry and music. It wasn't theater. It was Rodney DeCrew and the Wise Blood, and as part of. Um, there, uh, I, I believe it was a, a, a memorial for Al Purdy, the Canadian poet Al Purdy, who I um, I interviewed. I did um, a, a, a review, a pre-recorded review at that point, where we played The Country North of Belleville, which is my favorite Al Purdy poem. Uh, it's Look it up. It's on the podcast. And I, I, I remember thinking that the cults really is, they are a theater, but they also do want to do kind of that... Uh, performance hall kind of thing. They're really trying for that with the venue, especially with, I think, their fringe shows. Because mm-hmm. they had, like, uh, Woody Said and Flute Loops at the fringe, both of which were at least partly musical shows. Flute Loops more so than Woody Said, but Woody Said was about a musician. Those are both one-person shows. So they're trying to, I think, expand into being a performance venue 
for I'd say music and maybe maybe comedy, but I doubt it. Yeah, well, I know a good number of the plays coming up there um, are musical in some way. Like, um, so they have this femme series coming up, which is highlighting like women uh, and women identifying creed work, you know. Um, and uh, there's this one show that's part of that series that is like incorporates karaoke somehow. Um, it's uh, so yeah, they do a lot of different things, and uh, um, I so I love theater, but I uh, acknowledge that sometimes you go and see a play, and you're like, that was a very self-indulgent you know um like you it's just it doesn't you know i i, I didn't enjoy it i haven't seen it's like jazz it's all for the people performing it <laughs> i like jazz <laughs> i do as well i like a lot of jazz but i think the state of jazz at this point is very equivalent to the state of poetry in that yeah. there was a point when it was an extremely dominant art form mm-hmm. and there are many people who still enjoy it but because it is no longer a dominant art form, being one of the people who does enjoy it means that there is an inherent sort of clickiness and a very sort of aficionado yeah. kind of environment to it that also in turn makes it so that jazz, we have in jazz, you have like, I am, you know, we have, there's a comedian named Dusty Searcy who has a great joke about this. He goes, you know, I think for our jazz group, we're, I, you're on trumpet, you're on saxophone, you're on cello, I am also on cello. Oh. Like, that's not something you do when you're trying to make a gold record. Like, that's something you make. I, I enjoy jamming. It's the same thing, I think, for a lot of slam poetry. There's catharsis, but there is not, um, let's just say, mass appeal. Yeah. And it, it's a shame because, I mean, well, at or least broad for, appeal. for theater, like, you know, you, like, if it's, say if it's your first play that you're going to go see, and um, what you see is this thing that's very like, yes, we're making this because we're theater artists and we're serious and we have a message to tell, but it really doesn't work. Like it doesn't connect with the audience. Um, you know, it's more for the performers themselves. Um, it, you know, that, I think that can turn away potential theater lovers. You know what I, I kind of feel about that is when in, in a lot of theater, uh, playwrights are incapable of writing about things that do not take place in the theater. <laughs> There are a lot of shows we've had that are set in shows, and they're about theater history. And I get why. Like, there was, like, Nell Gwynn. There was, um, not Curtains, but it was uh, Jitters a little while back. We had reviews of that. And almost all the time, even not in that respect, there's one thing where the narrator is often a writer or some form of artist, and it all takes place within that community. I get why write what you know is good advice, but I would also add on to that learn more things. <laughs> because not everyone pursues art for a living. Not everybody pursues art in general. And part of that that assumption feeds into what you're saying yeah. about unrelatability. And, well, I guess the reason I brought this up is I I have never felt that when I'm at the Colch. Um, the shows that I've seen have done some really cool experimental stuff. Oh, nice. Um, and uh, it's always really engaging in some way or another. So yeah, Terrific. I, I have high hopes. <laughs> uh, was, was that show that you were talking about that you're going to see tomorrow? Uh, Miss Krishnan's Party. So that means the audience isn't seated? No, well, okay, so it, they are. Uh, well, there are a few options. So you can uh, there's um, the option to sit at a table in the middle of the stage. 
Um, so, you know, they're, you know, that's where they serve food and stuff. Um, there are seats right behind that as well. And then I think there's like a, if you pay, you can pay less and there's just like standing room in the back. So you're also members of the party, um, uh, but you don't get a seat, you know. It's supposed to be like a party atmosphere. You get some hors d'oeuvres, like <laughs> you know, yeah. some baji, a samosa, you know. Ex- well, I think it's dal, I think is what they're serving. Oh, nice. Okay, that's good. Yeah. It's good. It's good for you. <laughs> yeah, lentils, they're high in protein. They're good stuff. Uh, I, I I don't have a lot of money. I cook very frugally. Um, so there's kind of no separation between the space where the actors are no. and the space where the... That's interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll have to check that out. Miss Christian's party. Mm-hmm. Christian, yes? Yes. Okay, excellent. All right. So we're just going to take another short PSA break. I know. I know. So long since the last one. But um, and when we return, we will talk about uh, a little bit about religion in theater as we're going to have an interview, like I said, with Ian Farthing uh, and then a brief review of Travis Bernhardt's Unscriptured. I am informed that there is no relation to Sandra Bernhardt. Shame, isn't it? When you join Balloon Club, we guarantee that you will be able to make a balloon poodle within the first day. Here at the UBC Ant Club, we just like to talk about ants and compare ant farms. Uh, It's really cool. Paperclip Club is all about, well, paperclips mostly. At Blah Club, you can blah blah, blah 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 blah. Explosions. There's only one club worth joining at UBC, and that's CITR 101.9 FM. We got free tickets to shows, whirly pops, professional help, and all types of audio engineering, passes to festivals, crazy parties, live band swag, all types of crazy people. Our programming manager rides a motorcycle. There's freestyle rapping, Nardwar, the human serviette, the vinyl and record libraries, Discord or magazine, free studio recording, and it sure beats the hell out of Paperclip Club, which is a thing that I just made up because I work at CITR. So come check us out on the floor of the Student Union Building. We got all types of crazy shit for you to do. Or check us out online at www.citr.ca. You know what's better than reading a great magazine? Reading a great magazine that also helps you fight poverty. Megaphone Magazine is sold by homeless and low-income vendors on the streets of Vancouver and Victoria. Vendors buy magazines for 75 cents and sell them for $2. It's flexible, low-barrier work for people who may not have access to traditional jobs. Download the Megaphone app to find vendors and buy the magazine, even when you don't have change. We're back. And as promised, we, we, well, actually, we shall be gone remotely. Here is the interview with Ian Farthing, current director of A Prayer for Owen Meany. You're listening to the Arts Report. probably already knew that. And joining me in the studio today, or in the record library, rather, is Ian Farthing, the director of... Now, for some reason, it will not play off of my phone. Um, onto the uh, auxiliary channel, which I will have to figure out remotely. Um, suffice to say that uh, Ian Farthing has been, well, he's been C.S. Lewis in, uh, the, in the Pacific Theater's production of Tolkien. Um, now, uh, this is very interesting to me, the associations here, because, well, not only did, they, did Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe come to the stage, as we've, we've reviewed, uh, and C.S. Lewis, well, that, that was directed by J.R.R. Tolkien in, in Tolkien, because Ron Reed directed it. 
And uh, recently, that um, the uh, the the thing in in practice here is the well, excuse me, just trying to figure out how things work. <sighs> what was I talking about? Oh yeah, C.S. Lewis. Um, yes, uh, the thing about C.S. Lewis was that he was an apologist, and we've mentioned this previously. He wrote Christian apologetics, and. It's very interesting to me to hear about the ideas of faith based in C.S. Lewis because one person who believes in that, for example, is the mountain goat, John Darnielle. Ian Farthing doesn't explain that, but he does explain a couple of other things, and now we can play it. Pacific Theater's 2019 inaugural production, A Prayer for Owen Meany, based on John Irving's novel. Ian, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Hi. Now, i got to ask you this, because I've seen you perform in Pacific before as, as C.S. Lewis. Oh, right, yeah. In Ron Reed's Tolkien. So you've been both an actor and now a director. What's sort of what's your sort of relationship with Pacific? How do you put over production? Um, I've been working with Pacific Theatre probably for about eighteen years, on and off. And uh, I started out as an actor, but I do direct more nowadays. Occasionally, when uh, something comes up and somebody offers me a job like C.S. Lewis in Tolkien, it's hard to refuse. So he was Ron was able to get me back onto the boards. But directing is really my my passion. And these are two very different, very literary roles. Do you see a sort of distinction or similarity here? Is there a through line? What kind of work goes into adapting John Irving and playing C.S. Lewis? They are very different uh, plays. Uh, the Tolkien was sort of a, a bio-epic, uh, charting the relationship between those two, whereas uh, A Prayer for Owen Meany is adapting a novel for the stage. So uh, it, Owen Meany is a, an incredible story, and it's one that I think lends itself to theatre. John Irving famously said that he thought it was impossible to put Owen Meany on film because film is two-dimensional and it takes away any sense of the imagination. Whereas theater opens up the imagination. You're, you're able to have all sorts of, uh, the audience plays a part in the creating of the process. Uh, I mean, I love Owen Meany because it's such a, an engaging story. I, what hooked me in the first time I read the novel, I guess was about, 15 years ago was the very first sentence and I think it's one of the best crafted sentences in literature um, I am doomed to remember a boy with a wrecked voice not because of his voice or because he was the smallest person I ever knew or even because he was the instrument of my mother's death but because of him I believe in God I am a Christian because of Owen Meany Huh. And to me, that just is so intriguing and uh, it makes me want to know more immediately because there's so many questions like, well, what is this wrecked voice? And, uh, you know, how did his mother die? And all those sorts of things. It's a very interesting proposition faith-wise. Yeah, yeah. And so the play is kind of a journey through, like Lewis and Tolkien, it's a journey of two friends who, uh, a journey of faith and friendship. I imagine the ideas of faith in Prayer for Owen Meany, though, are significantly different from those of C.S. Lewis. Yeah, I mean, Owen Meany uh, believes that he has been put on this uh, world by God for a specific purpose. Um, he has a, a dream which is very specific, in which he uh, sees how and when he's going to die, and he doesn't know why. And so it's interesting how the play, uh, the play is done through a flashback, through the memory of his friend John. So we we see the sort of uh, the journey of that story as it as the prophecy fulfills, and bringing this to the Pacific Theater space, which is a very interesting space, as many of our listeners likely know. 
What sort of considerations go into that? Well, this is a big cast. It's 17 people. Oh. And I'm not sure of the last time Pacific Theatre had that many people on stage in a play before. You did so, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with two people. Exactly, yeah. Uh, so it's a, that's an interesting challenge. But I love the space because it is so intimate. Um, uh, and there's an interesting energy between the audience and the actors on stage in that space, which is unique in this town, I think. Um, the, and the audience is... A very loyal audience at Pacific Theatre. So, and and this play is right up their alley. And if there's one thing that can sort of, if you have no familiarity with the book, apart from that first sentence, what is sort of something that can prepare you for seeing this? Uh, well, as I said, it's a story of friendship, which I think everybody can relate to. Uh, and Owen Meany is just such an interesting character uh, uh, that I think anybody anybody would be interested to see how this little diminutive guy who has this strange voice and this certainty of his faith, how uh, he can make an impact on people's lives. And I think the, the lesson for us all is that it doesn't matter how small a person you are, how, how insignificant you feel, you can always make a difference in somebody's life. Even the smallest person can change their voice. Exactly. <laughs> Bring it back to Tolkien, I suppose. Correct, yeah. Do you have anything else to say to our listeners? Um, well, you're primarily a student audience, so I guess yeah. budget is an issue. So uh, Pacific Theatre has uh, $20 Wednesday nights. Ah. All tickets $20. And if even and there's a pay-what-you-can preview on the 17th. And if that's still too much, they're always looking for volunteer ushers to come and hand out programs, and then you get to see the show for free. You heard us. You heard it from us here. Check out the volunteer usher position. Check out the uh, $20 Wednesdays. Listen to our show on the way there. All right, Ian, it's been a pleasure to have you, and break a leg. Thank you so much. Cheers. Interesting stuff. Interesting things happened when you do unedited field interviews in a record library. You know, that's the funny thing, is that I did, a re I did an interview in the record library before, and it was right before the American election uh, with a representative of the Free Speech Club. It was an uh, interesting, interesting time uh, to be in the news. There's a reason I'm not on that program. There's a reason I... Well, actually, no. There's a reason I don't have the stomach for that coverage. Mostly because I'm a pencil neck. So, um, yeah. Check out Prayer for Om... Again, I'm interested in that. And I would really do... I We're probably going to want to revisit this contrast, but... So there's a show called Unscriptured. <laughs> which... Now, as you may surmise, uh, the Pacific Theater is a place that takes interesting looks at faith, which I, I do admire about them because I am interested in how they put that over. Um, Unscriptured is a, a little bit of an, a more strange step, shall we say, maybe a little more parodic. Uh, Unscriptured, for those uh, who have missed our last show, is the work of improv comedian Travis Bernhardt, which is a completely improvised church service for a religion based on an audience suggestion. Now, I attended this. It's at the, it was at the Havana Theater, and I believe it is uh, no longer going. It ended on uh, the 12th. But uh, it, this has been its second running after an appearance at Fringe. So if you run in improv circles, you'll probably interact with Mr. Bernhardt in some capacity. Um, Unscriptured operates based on, let's just say, very strident rhythm. And that is how you string an improv show together. And I think that the medium playing it like it is a church service is good because it engages, you know, it's, it's, it's a medium people are aware of, even if, like myself, they're, they're non-denominational or they've even if they've never been to church. Um, 
Now, the the thing is, the suggestion can get weird, and the religion that we had this time around was cognitive dissonance. I, I will refrain from making any jokes about Roman Catholicism. Um, but uh, the, uh, the thing about it was that, you know, you got to make up a creed. So they said, change your mind, change your mind, uh, were things like that. And it's like, our, our sacred animal, it's a squirrel. Because the squirrel, the squirrel, you know what the squirrel does? It runs in the middle of the road. And then, you know, sees a car coming. It do, what does it do? Does it run across the road? No. It decides to run back a little bit. Then it runs a little back where it was. And then it keeps running, keeps running. And then the car squashes them flat. That's cognitive dissonance for you. And I apologize <laughs> to anybody wearing headphones. <laughs> And it was, it's a fun time. Uh, it's a lot of audience participation. It's, it's as, a, as Kermit the Frog said, time's fun when you're having flies. It seems shorter than it is. It's about an hour long show. Um, and it's, it's really a good time. It's really good energy. I don't have a lot to say about it because there is, again, no script. Uh, let's just say there were miraculous healings. I took part in the audience participation where me and another guy basically reenacted the, 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 the bit from Titanic where it's like, don't fall. Um, again, no context is going to make that better. Uh, and you see interesting True. things, you know, it's, I, I, I've got to think about it cause I've been thinking about, well, I think about religion a lot. It comes up on the show and specifically in respect to Pacific's programming. Cause a lot of Pacific's programming is explicitly religious and I'm interested in the ways they present that. Only wish I probably read more of CS Lewis to think about it. I heard his apologetics are not very good. Does that resonate with anybody in this room? I don't even know what that is. So Christian apologetics are, you know who C.S. Lewis is? Oh, yeah. So Christian apologetics are like applied philosophy to defend Christianity. C.S. Lewis did it. G.K. Chesterton did it. C.S. Lewis was like the Anglican G.K. Chesterton. Uh, what, do, what do they have to de defend it from? Like, um, what's the need for this? I could be atheist all... from secularist saying that God doesn't exist? Uh, yeah, sense. from a lot of things. Like, uh, it, it's essentially answers to sustain a lot of the creeds thereof. And it, it, it differs depending on your creed. For example, Lewis was an Anglican, which is interesting because he was brought to Christianity by the very Catholic J.R.R. Tolkien uh, and very influenced by the also very Catholic G.K. Chesterton. Uh because really, Anglicanism and slash Episcopalianism, if you're American, it's the same thing, are kind of Catholic light. They're just they're Catholicism without the Pope, and that's I think that is a huge breaking point for a lot of people because papal infallibility is an issue both for Orthodox Christians who are also a high church and for Anglicans. Because well, actually, funny thing, technically, if you're an Anglican, you do admit that the ruler of England is also the head of the church. So that's an interesting thing in and of itself. But I'm totally lost. I'm Jewish. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what? It's weird. This is the way I can think about it. Because so the, the Torah, the Bible, the Quran, and to an extent the Book of Mormon all draw on the same source. And the best way I can summarize it is so the Torah is the original book. Torah is like book one in series. Then the Bible is like the sequel that expands on it a lot, <laughs> tells you what a lot of the side characters were doing, where they are now. Then the Quran is kind of like a reboot of of that. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah, sort of. We're, we're going to have some more details in here. We're going to recontextualize that a little bit. But otherwise, like, you know, the, the Pentateuch is intact. The five first five books are common throughout. And then the Book of Mormon is just online fan fiction. <laughs> the Book of Mormon's just... The, the, the musical, the Book of Mormon, does not undersell how I will... Uh, uh, 
ap- 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 apologies to Mormon listeners, but the, the Mormon Church is a truly bizarre organization. I, I, I don't... I don't have the same vitriol towards it that I have towards Scientology because that's just straight up a cult. <laughs> and Mormonism, like Mormon, the Mormon church and I would say the Jehovah's Witnesses as well, are kind of a conditional cult, which is they're a little too large to be a proper cult. But they got magic underwear. <laughs> no, I'm serious. If you're a Mormon, you can send out to Salt Lake City for what are literally blessed silk undergarments that have a lifetime warranty to... I quote, I don't, well, I don't know if I quote exactly, but the purpose is to keep temptation away. That's a long way of saying, here are never-ending silk garments to keep the boner devils out of your trousers. <laughs> I wonder how many people take them up on that. I, I have a pair. You do. They have a lifetime warranty. Why not? I had to pay for them because I'm not a Mormon, but I kind of feel bad. You bought a, a pair of underwear that will ensure not getting laid? Because that's what it is. I thought my sweater did that already. <laughs> <laughs> For those unaware, I am wearing a plum-colored v-neck, which could be the uniform for, you can't arrest me, my dad's a lawyer. (laughs) Spokesman, me! All I'm missing is a pair of boat shoes, but I'm wearing bean boots, so it's the same difference. (laughs) Ah, Oh, we have fun. We have fun. We do. And we're probably going to come back to this when we review Prayer for Owen Meany next show, but I do think about the religious aspect of it a lot. I, I like that Pacific's doing that, you know? There's a lot of think about it a lot. I think about the Quakers recently. Hmm. You know? About them. The Quakers, so the Quakers technically don't believe in the Bible. It's interesting because you assume the Quakers are, are Christian and they kind of are, but their founder, George Fox, said the Bible is a book like any other. And the Quakers believe in personal testimony above all else, hmm. as far as I'm given to believe, and that every sentient, all sentient life is divine. So that's why they're pacifists. That's like the one commandment in Mormon. It in Quakerism, Mormonism, very different thing, is do not harm another sentient being because they're all divine. And for Quaker church is like just where a bunch of people meet up and they sit there. And if someone feels compelled to speak, that's God talking. And if not, well, they just sit in silence. That's pretty cool. Like just, okay. He's like, okay, productive. And a Quaker wedding is apparently you just have this same meeting and you're like, hey, we're married now. Everyone's like, cool. All right. Well, that's a, that was that was shockingly simple. That's kind of zen. I like it. It's I've I've read I've read that like Shinto weddings are like thirty minutes long, like they're like the entire ceremony is like thirty minutes. What's Shinto? That's the folk religion of Japan. Hmm. That's the one where like the emperor is a god. Hmm. Not I don't I don't know anymore, but there were weird implications for that in the Second World War. Man, that went to a dark place. So fast. Yeah, so quickly. Well, the Quakers had a rough time coming into America because the Puritans were there. Very, as we know, extremely tolerant people. You know, <laughs> very, very, very fond of things like, uh, you know, uh, women reading and, uh, <laughs> a, 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 you know, an, anybody darker than a brown paper bag not being, uh, you know, personal being property. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. The, the, so the Quakers got like the, there was a time when being a Quaker in the States got you got your ear cut off. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was fun. Uh, but apparently the Quakers would get, they'd be tortured and they would try to convert the people torturing them, which if you're a torturer, it's got to be a very disgruntling thing. You're like, like you're, you're on like hour seven of stretching a guy on, on the rack <laughs> and he's going, I tell you, I just feel a light inside of me. You're going, okay, we've really got to find a different way to crack this nut. <laughs> and eventually, eventually the King of England, cause the King of England didn't like Puritans very much. Cause you know, he was Charles II and they killed his dad. So... 
he was like, yeah, yeah, guys, stop harassing the Quakers. And they were like, okay, and kept harassing the Quakers. And then he said, guys, stop harassing the Quakers. And they're like, well, we might have a revolution. And King Charles was like, oh, yeah. And they're like, yeah. And 40 years later, they did. It had very little to do with the Quakers, I would say, by the end of it. The abolition of slavery had a great deal to do with the Quakers, though. This has been the Arts <laughs> Report. <laughs> Basically, Bravo. I just summarized actually what is a really good episode of The Dollop, uh, which is a podcast you should totally listen to. Um, yeah, so definitely check out Prayer for Owen Meany. And uh, if you can find it, check out Travis Bernard's work. Uh, I'm your host, Jake Clark. I'm Margarita. I'm Leah. And you know what? It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. What newspapers and magazines did you regularly read to stay informed and to understand the I've world? read most of them, again, with a great appreciation for the press, for the media. But like, what coming, ones specifically? Um, all of them. Want to know more than Sarah Palin? Join CITR's Current Affairs Coordinator, Alex DeBoer, every Tuesday from 4 to 5 p.m. in room 2514 in the AMS Nest to learn best practices for covering local current affairs topics for radio. The weekly training sessions will cover writing for radio, determining newsworthiness, media ethics, interviewing, writing balanced stories, and more.